1: First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They are warm, breathable, silent, and odor resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years uh, from the mountains in idaho to the plains in nebraska and i feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot it's more true to size it's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit Uh, all of the pieces to me got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.
0: Welcome back to Cutting the Distance. September is now well in our rearview mirror and beagles are few and far between, if any at all. But that means we're in the thick of general mule deer seasons in most places. Um, and the rut's just about ready to kick in here at the end of October. Today's guest grew up down the road uh, in Scapoose, Oregon. He spent a lot of time hunting black-tailed deer and Roosevelt elk with his dad growing up. And he was able to take some really nice blacktails over the years and he feels that this is where he kind of fell in love with deer hunting. Throughout college, Duke didn't get to hunt as much uh, due to college sports. Um, he was a wrestler and a long-distance runner at University of Oregon. Once they cut the wrestling program, he decided to move over to Eastern Oregon, and that's where he was able to spend a lot more time in the mountains uh, pursuing mule deer. It was there where he really got hooked on mule deer and had the opportunity to work for a fishing game in a heavily used winter range area for deer. Um, he also now works for First Light. Uh, I believe he'll correct me if I'm wrong. He tests gear and, and advises on some of our product lines. And he's, he's one of the best. He won't admit it. He's as humble as they come, but he's one of the best and probably most passionate mule deer hunters um, and guys I've ever talked to about the deer themselves. So welcome to the show, Duke. Hi there. Thank you. So are you ready to explain to all the listeners why elk are better than mule deer? <laughs>
2: <laughs> i gotta say i like elk hunting too man <laughs> yeah I, I
0: i think one time we were talking and uh you have kind of a mindset where um you like you like elk hunting but usually you kill like maybe the first legal bull or whatever you can find so then you can concentrate the rest of your time on mule deer though
2: yeah that's i would agree with you on that and and i feel like even when i'm talking to people it, it it always transitions over to talking, talking about deer too. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're, we're recording this on October 17th. I think it'll come out on the 26th. So I know your guys' deer season there in Idaho has kind of already got started. Have you been able to get out much this year? You just getting ready to kind of give it a, a, a good go here at the end of season.
2: Shoot as much as I can, really. It's been, um, it's been tough this year though, but I've been any chance I can get, I've been out. So. Um, any, any luck yet or or seeing any good movement or is it still a little early or? Haven't really turned up anything too great, but I mean, I have been surprised. There are a lot of deer out this year. We had a, a pretty tough winter last year. Um, I'd say both on the deer and the elk. Um, one of the nice things is I do feel like a lot of the deer do move out of here for like their winter range and stuff. So it, it definitely seems like we haven't been crazy impacted by the deer or by the winter the deer
0: that's a, that's a good sign um so i i've never asked you this before but I, i've heard stories um about about some of your your like early morning hunts um you know it stems from your wrestling and i'm sure your long distance running but what some people would think is is crazy there's a lot of stories running around where you would run five to ten miles into an area so you could get a quick hunt in prior to prior to work and then you'd run that back. So like for what would take me a whole day to run maybe 15 to 20 <laughs> miles you were doing it just to get a quick hour to 2 hour deer hunting. And that's how dedicated you were to to making sure you were on the mountain every day. Is that is there any truth to that story?
2: I would say more of it has been like in the summer scouting, like getting into certain areas before work and stuff like that. Um definitely have done s- some stuff like that after work, say trying to get to a glossing point after work but um definitely in the summer for for getting to areas to look right before dark or early in the morning you know yeah, that's that's crazy <laughs> like
0: I, i'm not anybody that knows me i'm not much of a runner and, and duke's built for this <laughs> stuff but it's just those crazy stories like when you always think you're hunting hard there's somebody doing crazy stuff like that so uh, <laughs> I, I was just curious to ask you that um <laughs> So like, like all cutting the distance episodes, we're going to jump into a few listener questions. Um, if you have any questions for me or my guests, uh, feel free to email us at CTD at phelpsgamecalls dot And, uh, we'll do our best to get it, uh, you know, answered by my guests or myself. So the first one in, and, and like I say, Duke's as humble as they come, he's pretty secretive too. So I already, I already gave him permission that if, if we start to talk about something, he doesn't want to talk about, he's got the, you know, the freedom to get out of them. So, um. Duke, when when we talk about Duke being a mule deer hunter, he's not just a good mule deer hunter. He's a, he's a good deer hunter of, of mature mule deer bucks. Like he, he targets, um, big bucks. He focuses on big bucks. And, uh, a lot of, a lot of what maybe he passes up is, is something that, you know, many would like not saying, but, but a lot of what I'm trying to get at is what he finds on big bucks is going to work even better on the rest of them. So I think what we can take um, is everything that Duke does and, and some of the strategies he uses, they're going to work on all mule deer, except for, uh, he uses some of this stuff to maybe find some of the bigger ones. Um, so the, the first question is kind of right in your wheelhouse. Um, what, in your opinion, like what's the most important factor in finding big mule deer? Um, is it, is it an area or the genetics in an area? Um, is it seclusion? And then is seclusion, is that different when you're scouting versus where the deer are going to be during season? Is it pressure? Like, if somebody's trying to find big mule deer or or something like that like what advice do you have to to like
2: find those Mhm. Um well definitely in the summer I would I mean my favorite thing in the summer is just to get to the highest point where you can look over like multiple different areas and not just say one basin and sometimes I mean that could be going 2 3000 feet up to to get to where you're looking over tons of country you know. And, um, I feel like one of the best things I've been able to use say is I've got a BTX to where you're, you're looking over miles and miles of country, you know, to pick out different areas to get to. Okay. So I see these deer and then you start moving into that country. But as far as like, um, say hunting them, I would say, the the biggest thing I have found is like just the seclusion, and it's not necessarily like super remote areas, but it's like an area where they can be safe and not be seen by people. I know that, yeah, it's it's just weird how the the it, you find consistencies with finding like really really big deer, like you could on put on Google Earth like. Dang, that is literally the same exact type of area, like not necessary terrain, but like it's the same type of area all of the deer I've found are in, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: but but one has pressure, one doesn't, and they're just not going to be there. Yep. Um, and we're going to dive into that a little bit more. Like once you find a target buck, like what's the radius on where you think you might find him. Or if you find him maybe somewhere in the summer where he's not getting pressure, but hunting comes in. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit more on that, um, down, down the road in this podcast. But yeah, so you're saying seclusion and, and just an area where that buck has everything he needs, right? We he needs to have that, that good summer forage. He needs to be semi secluded. Um, you know, and so that's same thing we found here. You know, we don't have near the deer you guys do in Idaho, but some of our hike. High count country Washington spots is you just need to get away from people off the roads off the beaten path mm-hmm. and, and we talked about this a little bit before the podcast it's not maybe it's not necessarily always in right you can go five miles in but if it's an easy trail lots of hikers lots of hunters it might be better to go half a mile in but go fifteen hundred feet up the mountain like you said it's that type mm-hmm. of seclusion not necessarily deep
1: mm-hmm.
0: yep um, the the next question we've got for you uh, what type of terrain is your favorite to target deer um you know you're where you're located you've got a lot of what i would consider like similar terrain but like are you trying to get into avalanche shoots more wide open stuff like fringy stuff above tree line um like you know in tree line seems to be sometimes tough but like is there a is there a certain thing you're looking for um like you know finger ridges with timber but openings in between like explain kind of your ideal meal deer
2: spot if there is one um specifically some of the stuff that I've been hunting out here, I would say, you know, timber pockets, small openings, it it seems another consistent thing is around rocky, you know, avalanche types, shoots, stuff like that, um, steep high elevation, you know, that's what I would say.
0: Is there, is there anywhere to to kind of piggyback on that? You know, we show up sometimes in what looks like goat country. Is there, have you ever found like an elevation or an area where deer just won't visit? Or are those big mature bucks, they're willing to live like right in the rocks. Um, There's nothing that's necessarily too steep or too nasty. Or are there, are there spots that you sometimes write off like a deer can't live in there or what he
2: needs isn't here for him to survive? Um, I mean, (laughs) The only thing I can say that I've found is like, sometimes it could be a little bit too high where they have like no feed, you know, but I'd say just below like that upper tree or say, what's the best way to explain that? Like seen quite a few deer in goat country, you know, but like, I feel like just below the goats is a good, good. you know, that type of country. Yeah,
0: yeah. Where they can come down and grab a little feed, and then sometimes those bigger bucks or those deer will go up in bed even in those rocks, but they've got the ability to come down and grab food or go into the timber to escape if they need to.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it, too, is just safety, too. You know, they've, they can hear anything coming into them. They can see from a long ways away, that type of stuff. Yep, yep. <clears throat>
0: Um, yeah, it's crazy. You know, I grew up in, in the lowlands, you know, similar to you and in, in scapoose and, and what mm-hmm. you think we have around here, like, oh, deer want to be in the fringes, you know, on the edge of clear cuts, or they want to be, you know, at these edges and fringes and you get up in the high country and you just can't imagine deer living there, but, you know, avalanche shoots, it's, it kind of transfers. It's that fringe on the avalanche shoots. Cause you got brush that sometimes goes into timber or into rocks. Um, and, and that's where I always seem to focus no matter whether I'm in, you know, Colorado, high desert, or you know, Idaho mountains or Colorado mountains. It's, it seems like you find the mix. Like you don't want to be out in a wide open, you know, field or meadow. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be in like never ending timber. You want to be like on the edges of where all these things intersect, the brush, the the trees, the rocks, like find all of those, you know, intersections of, of, you know, changing vegetation, changing terrain features. And it seems like that's where you like to focus and, and kind of pick up. It seems like the majority of time you'll pick them up. You know, they, they always, where they are but that seems to be the general spot is on those fringes and edges Mm -hmm. yeah i agree perfect so uh we didn't have too many listener questions we're not really fully into meal deer mode yet but once again if you have questions (laughs) for me or my guests um please email them to us at ctd phelps game calls dot uh, com and we'll do our best to to kind of get those answered and and duke kind of had to chuckle there a little bit because i think he's always in full-time uh mule deer mode where i kind of go through the seasons <laughs> i love elk hunting and then i love mule deer hunting and then you know, throw whitetails on there at the end so uh yeah now we're going to jump into some of my questions i have you know I, I always go back to we we got to what was it two or three years ago we were there um in you know, in your neck of the woods, and we were doing some team building, uh, skeet and trap shooting. And I think we quickly turned into as competitive <laughs> as both of us are, we were done shooting skeet and trap, and we sat and bs about mule deer and areas for the for probably the the next hour and a half and didn't really care about shooting shotguns anymore. Um <laughs> but but you know, knowing about you know, you're you're as humble as they come, I can't reiterate that enough. Um, you're very successful at killing very big mule deer. Um, and you seem to kind of have a plan or a strategy to do it year in and year out. And, and you don't really accept anything um, besides what you set out to do. And uh, that's really why I wanted to have you on the podcast um, and just pick your brain a little bit. So I'm going to kind of jump into to some of my personal questions I had for you. And maybe we've talked about them before, but maybe some of this stuff is is new. Um, can, you, can you give myself and the listeners just kind of your overall approach to meal deer hunting? Like, how do you pick an area? Um, You know, if you weren't, if it wasn't in your back door or a couple units over familiar, like how do you pick an area? How do you decide where you're going to go? And, and how do you decide on that area? You, you know, you, you talk about a lot of scouting, like walk us through just finding good mule deer and, and how you kind of break down an area, a unit, a part of the state, whatever it may
2: be.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, shoot. I think the, I think the biggest thing for me is, I do strike out a lot. That's the one thing is like go to as many different areas as I possibly can get into in a summer, say, but um, the tough thing about a lot of the country out, you know, that I hunt out here is like, it seems like a lot of the deer in the areas I'm at don't get there till really late. So it's almost like you're going into these areas and you're not really seeing much at all. And it, it kind of seems like they show up like the, I don't know if this is completely true or, or what it is, but it's like it almost seems like they show up like right at the end of August, mid to late August, and then you start seeing them like during bow season, you know, elk season. Um, but I feel like I think the biggest thing for me, man, is just like cover as much country as possible, and you got to be there early and you got to be there late. If you're going to be, you know, that's the biggest yeah. thing. Be there in the dark and be there at dark. And, um, you know, and I think the other thing too, Jason is just, just, okay. If you strike out, all right, let's go try it again tomorrow, the next day, the next day. And, and that one time it's going to pay off, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and so during that summer scouting, um, will you go back to an area like you just said sometimes those bucks don't seem to show up until late august you know i'm sure they're arriving at different times maybe there's a certain basin that that they're there you know late july or mid-august will you go back and check on them again if it's if it's one of your better spots or you just firmly believe they're going to be deer there or like how do you write off a spot versus how do you keep going back and you know because i run into the same problem and i'm i'm gonna gonna get into it here a little bit with you is like planning your day because you can only be in one spot on one day, and you want to maximize that time. Like you want to be in the best spot every day, or or a new country. How do you kind of determine like when you're going to write a spot off for a year, or will you will you come back and check on it a couple of weeks later, knowing things have changed? Like how do you process that Um, when you're scouting?
2: Hmm. Um. I read a the craziest things. I I read an article a couple. It was a couple years ago about. Um, a guy was talking that specifically how he he went into an area, didn't see anything, went in there like three weeks later and it was full of deer. And some of the spots out here are like that. The other thing I'll say is it's not like most of the areas we're looking over a ton of deer in general, you know. um So I kind of think like I'll check out this spot. And then say, I'm going to go back there three weeks later, two, two weeks later. And if, if I'm not seeing anything, I kind of just start moving, you know, to the next basin over, maybe they moved into here, you know, yep. um, it's tough. Cause this, this year specifically has been really, really weird. I, like I said, I had a couple bucks that I was really excited about from last year and I wasn't able to turn any of those deer up this year. So it's, you're kind of starting from zero, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I, I'm going to probably get ahead of myself. Um, when you say excited about last year, is that stuff that you found in the high country or stuff you saw like on the winter range?
2: High country, like, high country. like a uh, scouting July. No, it wasn't even July, more August, August scouting. I had found two bucks that were together and then I found another single buck and I wasn't able to turn up any of those this year you know yeah uh
0: i'm I'm going all over the place because you keep talking about stuff that (laughs) spurs me in a direction so you talked about two good bucks running together do you typically find um we we talked about this actually prior to the podcast one of our spots that you know about that i hunted and uh Mm -hmm. we found two giant bucks running together is that pretty typical that big bucks like to run with big
2: bucks so what's that's interesting. You said that too, because what I've actually found a lot of the time is like, you'll see one really big buck and he'll have like, it's almost like, I don't even know if this is true or what, but it's almost like he has like a little scout with him, you know, or a couple little yeah. bucks with him. So usually I haven't seen where it's like two really big, big bucks together though.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, cause I mean, growing up, you always watch like the, the Kai vid- you know, videos and, and the, mm-hmm. you know, all the hickory back when they had giant mule deer. And it seemed like some of those big bucks, the, even the famous bucks would sometimes run together for certain amounts of time, right up to the rut. And so I was just curious mm-hmm. if you've noticed that early summer before they, you know, why they're still buddies before they hate each other and want to kill each other. If they were, if you see that they kind of run like that, um, we have some elk areas You know our good buddy Brian Sanders that we both know really well. Like some of of the elk spots, he's a firm believer that some of those big bulls, for some reason, like they could go have their own herd. But sometimes some of those like subordinate big bulls will run a herd, or or run second to the herd bull, and even third. It's like they just like to be around each other, um, which is kind of a crazy Mm -hmm. crazy idea. Like you can go run any other herd in this entire area, but yet you're stuck with the one bull that won't let you have any cows. um, Mm -hmm. Which you know similar similar ideas.
3: After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with aji verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit themeateater.com or
0: buy it wherever books are sold. All right, before I went on a tangent there, we were talking about like winter range bucks. Um, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I'm just going to let it go where it goes. Is do you pay a lot of attention postseason, like what's showing up on the winter range? Like, is, is that to get an idea for specific deer or specific areas that may, um, have big bucks in it that you may want to look at in the, in the future? Like how, what do you do during that winter range time? And then how do you translate that into, you know, maybe hunting them the following year?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so we were actually just talking about that a couple of weeks ago here. Um, that is actually one of my absolute favorite things to do is like, as soon as the season opens, especially if we can get some snow, um, I like to be like be right back up on the mountain as much as I can too. For one, finding like the migration routes, try and find where um where those deer are coming from, and then see see what what's up there too. You know, that's that's absolutely one of my favorite things to do. Um, shoot, I'd say from like the first week of November almost all the way through november as much as i can
0: be out there paying attention and then if you if, if they're not in the high country and you you catch them when they're down on on let's say down on their winter range do you have a plan yeah. that you put together like i think he's going to go back up this drainage or when they get down to that winter range sometimes it's a little messy right because he could have came from any direction um do you have a plan or you just kind of put your feet you know put your boots on the ground and just try to start checking off like basins that look good or basins you think you might be in
2: to, to try to find him when he shows back up in July or August? Um, I would say like, it's more just, it's almost like a guessing game. Cause it shoot those bucks could be coming from so far away too. But I think it's more of like, um, it's just kind of cluing in to different areas. Like, okay, I'm going to go check this base and maybe he's up in here or, or did he come through this direction? You know, and I feel like it has kind of worked, worked pretty good finding new areas to see deer migration routes and whatnot.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, I, I live in an area where there's not a lot of migration and, but we have hunted those hunts. You know, we talked about, um, the area we were in in Idaho where we literally didn't see a deer take a bite of grass for a week. You know, they, every deer we saw was on its feet moving through, through the area. And we just caught that migration. Right. And, uh, you know, we happened to be, we stayed high on the mountain, you know, up in the snow trying to catch them high in that migration. But if you would have caught them a day later down in the bottoms or two days or however, wherever they finally staged up, you wouldn't have known that that deer came you know, off the ridge we were on and down in there, you would have just been kind of had to guess like, did he, come from the west the east you know you would have never known like where the heck that deer came from to get there and and putting that back together may be tough like all right in a year where there wasn't snow you know you want to go find him next year like where where would he be it's sometimes a lot of guesswork and you know uh, a lot of scouting to try to try to find him or or find him where he's at when you can hunt him before the snow
2: Mm mm-hmm Especially, especially in a situation like that, when they're, where they're covering so much country in such a short amount of time too, that's what makes it really, really tough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was literally, I, and and I don't know if it's like that everywhere. Like some deer seem to have more like winter holding power, but in in some of these units in Idaho, it's like, they get a skiff and they're like, we're out, we're going down until there's no more snow. And it was, it was crazy to, to see that in in some of these areas, which makes it very difficult. And, um, you know, it, it. it was on the you know opening day and, and it would really almost all that scouting you did leading up to rifle season almost make, I don't want to say useless, but you were in the right area, but now they're gone. Now you have to go hunt them in some transition spot um, that makes it real difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any tips or strategies for in that transition? Cause I mean, it's, it's pretty typical. You guys get that, that weather early right in the middle of your season um these deer end up in a spot they're not so familiar with like what's your strategy at that point where deer end up in i don't want to say foreign but not where they in, in an area where they didn't spend their entire summer and were kind of patternable
2: mm-hmm. um what also seems weird about that too is it it's almost like it's an, an internal clock more than yes when they get the weather because there's a quite a few mountain passes and stuff they got to go over but i feel like it does seem like there's an internal clock at this date, roughly, say the middle of October, no matter what, they kind of start moving. Um, the tough thing about that for me is it's it almost just seems like you just kind of are getting lucky in a sense, you know, like you're just hoping that you're going to find a big buck as they're moving through more, more as like, okay, I got them found in the summer you know, that's, that's the one deer I'm going to hunt. But it's like, there, there are some, like, it's almost like they have these little staging areas to where you can go into an area, say next week. And you'll see 50 deer, but all summer, you're not going to see anything in there, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's that staging area kind of between where they summered versus where they're going to rut and where all the does are going to end up. So they're kind of just, those bucks don't want to jump in yet, but they're just kind of off, you know, or or just off of that group of does is what it seems like here at the, at the end of October. Mm-hmm. Middle to end.
2: And, yep. And I've always had it in my head, too, that like the really, really big bucks, I don't know that they go like... It's just hard for, for how many people that are out hunting these days, it's hard for me to believe that those deer are going somewhere, not rem- remote or secluded, you know, like for them to be that big, say five plus it's, it's like, I don't know. That's, that's, what's so cool to me about deer in general is that like, where the heck are they going? And the, the yeah. fun thing is like finding where the heck they're at, you know? Yep,
0: yeah, yep. Yeah yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a big mystery. And and that's what I think is hunters that can do it over and over. Like, you you know, your assumptions, your guesses, your, your ideas on where mm-hmm. these things are hanging out and going. Um, it, it really, you can only luck into it so many times before it's like, all right, you, you, uh, you're starting to figure it out, like where to find them or where they're going to go. And you just start to understand mule deer a little bit better for sure. Um, to be able to, mm-hmm. to, to figure out all those clues and and figure it out. Um, so, Kind of on the same uh, this in the same realm of scouting. Have you found that certain areas tend to hold similar age class deer, or are you always moving around trying to find the one or or a group of deer? Um, or have you found like if you find a good buck in a certain area, like the next biggest buck is going to take that buck spot or be in the area? Um, and do they come back to the same basins year after year?
2: Um, I will say I found certain little pockets or little areas that do have a lot more bucks than other spots i mean the country can look the exact same but there's 10 bucks in this little draw but there's nothing in the next one um i do kind of feel like they're there for a reason you know and i feel like obviously if if you are able to kill a big buck in there there's some reason he was able to hide and stay away from people. He's got good feed, he's got water, and he's able to bed down where he can hide from people, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like the I don't know, it's tough because it's it's like you find a really, really good spot and you can go back in there three years after that and you don't see anything that much bigger, say. So I feel like eventually, yes you're going to get a big buck in there, but it may just take quite a few years to find them, you know, or firm it's just tough. Cause I mean, so many people are just shooting deer in the, in their couple years before they're even able to get that big, I think is yeah. a big part of the issue, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and nothing against like, I always have to like, you know, we're doing you know, you're doing what you want to do. We're not necessarily, yep. but I, 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 we've always talked about like a mule deer's brain doesn't turn on until about four and a half, you know? And it seems like mm-hmm. up until that point, like he's very susceptible to being killed by maybe, maybe any, any hunter or any, any idea. But then as we're going to get into is like, do these big bucks start to bed in different spot? I almost, I always tell myself like, how would a hunter hunt this? Like, what's the easiest way up the ridge? What's the easiest way to this base? And I'm going to do it mm-hmm. a different way. Like I'm, I I honestly feel those bigger bucks sometimes know like, well, this is how every hunter would approach me. Like I'm going to bet on the opposite side or under a rock where you couldn't see me. And, and are you starting to think like a big mule deer? I, I, we're kind of always joking. Like what a mule deer expect us to approach from this way. Would he expect us to be able to see him from here? Cause he's probably not going to be there. We need to do something different. Um, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it takes walking across the basin or coming in from a different direction. Um, but yeah, I, I, like you said, I think it's that buck. The, for a buck to get there like he's got, he's gotta be of age and he gets smart enough to like figure out how to to not be seen, or he just got lucky in the spot where he started to bed, just you know kept him safe but i i doubt that that's it's a little bit of smarts and they're and they're putting more into it, and they've seen people and they've escaped people um they're 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 just getting smarter mm-hmm. so so we kind of walk through scouting kind of what you we've talked about hunting a little bit um. How do you take what you find scouting and then translate it into season? Um, Are you assuming that the buck and of course it's obviously going to lead up to, if you've seen the deer the day before considered scouting, you know, he's probably going to be there the next day, but will you, when you scout something, will you, if it's something you really like, will you stay on that deer and, and see, you know, is he moving basin to basin or are you staying on that deer to make sure he stays in that basin? And then as season gets here, like, how do you, how do you take your scouting to help you be successful during, during season, aside from knowing he's, he's in a certain area?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest thing is just, <clears throat> I mean the I can give you an example from a couple of years ago I I spent I can't even tell you how many days I spent after this one buck and I think I saw them total in in a a full year I think I saw the thing like five times and two of those five times it was literally me walking in To the area, I it was almost the exact same scenario. I actually put a trail cam in there, and I saw this deer twice. And I had sat up probably 800 yards away both days that I saw him in there, and glass making sure he wasn't in there before I went in there. And both times I saw the dang buck, he was bedded behind. I don't know. I don't even know where he was bedded or what. But I jumped him out of his bed twice. And, um, I ended up killing the deer. Like I think I had missed him the year before and I ended up killing him like less than 200 yards away from where I'd missed him a year before. But the crazy thing about that deer is I found him in June. Then the year after I had missed him and I think I shot him within hundred yards of where I shot him in October and I had found him in June.
0: So that buck was living in a real tight circle.
2: Tiny little area. And, and I mean, I had spent so many days in there, and I would never, I mean, I saw him in season once the year that I got him. And that was a crazy thing because somebody had jumped that deer, and there was a bunch of bucks all running together. And I watched them from, there were 600 yards down in this basin. And I watched all of the other bucks run down into the basin and he peeled off all by himself and stood behind this other tree. And they, they went down in the basin and he went all by himself out of there. And I think he was, we aged him and I think he was, the aging came back and he was at least six and a half. And it was crazy to see those bucks were three and a half, maybe four And he did his own thing away from all the other
0: deer. Just thought differently than the rest of those deer. Yep. 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 And that leads me to another, is that another thing that you found is, which is obvious by that story, but in general, do you you know, a lot of guys talk about like seeing a big buck and they can never relocate him. And, and I know it's going to depend on area, but are you a firm believer that that bucks around somewhere? You're just not able to see him. Like if he's in an area, the, you know, the reverse migrations over, or like, is, is there a, it, it's got to come from your gut, right. Or, or putting mm-hmm. all this together, but is there ever a time, like, when should you pull the plug versus like when you should stay and like pound an area, just knowing that that deer is probably there if he's
2: anywhere. Well, that was, that's one of my best examples is like, how can you look over an area so many days and never see the thing? And I I do, I just doesn't, I don't get how he could have been there the whole time, as many days as you've looked and you haven't gotten eyes on him. But I have another example from a couple years ago, where I had watched this buck for two summers in a row and he had been in the exact same spot both years and certain date, both years, it was, I think it was around, it was three days before bow season started, he would disappear. The first year I could never turn him up again. The second year it had been like almost two weeks and I'd been back there almost every day and could never turn the thing up again. Well, I went in there on the other side one morning and I looked up on the hill like 300 yards above me and the thing was standing up there and all he had done is he'd went from the open hillside super rocky country and he had moved down across the canyon into the timber and that I mean that was the last time I ever saw that deer but he he just went into the thickest gnarliest patch of timber it, it, I don't. It's hard to imagine how you would get them out of us as steep as this country is and thick blowdown, you know. But, yep. um, I think they're. I kind of think they are there. It's just they just get so good at hiding, you know. Yep,
0: yep. And that, yeah, that's that's like Mission Impossible when that big buck gets comfortable in like a big patch of timber because you can't. You're gonna make too much noise. You're never gonna sneak up on him, and he's got the, a huge advantage if he's not out in the open, you know. And we we hunted Colorado um, in 2016. And we had a big, big buck pushing that like 200 inch range, um, that Mm -hmm. he, he bedded in the timber, but then would come out above. Um, and then we, we bumped him one night and then we saw him run in there and never came out the rest of the trip. And it's like, well, at that point, you know, what do you do with him? We know he's there. We would keep hunting that Ridge, but he just, once he's in that timber and once he decides to leave the opening, because he's got a little bit of pressure, um, it's going to be real tough to, to hunt him, Um, you know, for sure. Uh, do you have any examples of, of how far big mule deer will move or mule deer in general? Like you always hear the stories of like, oh, this bull is rutting here, you know, cause it's some unique bull. And then he's killed seven miles away three days later, you know, are, are these mule deer, have you had the opposite where some mule deer will just sit at home versus like some mule deer are willing to travel two to three miles as the rut gets close or, you know, for, for no good reason to go to that staging area or whatever it may be. <laughs>
2: The, the only real example I have of that is it's kind of the opposite. The, the first year we lived out here, I found it was a, it was a really, really good buck. And I saw the thing one day and I want to say, let's see, it had been four weeks since basically saw it, wasn't able to make it happen and could never turn the deer up again. Like I wanna say about a month later, the deer was like about a mile away and, and it was during a, a late season tag and he ended up getting killed, but it was like how in that small of area was he able to hide out? You know, he like he literally didn't even go anywhere. Yeah. So
0: Yeah, he hid in there. Yeah. Um yeah, the only examples we got and it's it's a different setting than where you're at, you know, high mountain with with what I would consider wintering range pretty close. Um, like in our Montana spots where they kind of live in their winter range year round. Um, you can mm-hmm. get some of those bucks, you know, in the coolies or in some of that ag country. And it seems like they can go three or four or five miles in a night. Um, but it's different. You know, I think those mountain meal deer are a little bit more homebodies and they kind of, they, they stick to that and you know, the rut can pull them off or does can pull them off. But for the most part, they they don't move as much as, as the, the, the you know, desert mule deer, or the high, you know, the the high desert deer, or or the the, mm-hmm. the brakes deer, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, you know, you're you're in there early, you're there late, which kind of leads to glassing. Like, do you have you you mentioned you have a BTX? Um, you know, which for those that don't know, it's the dual eyed Swaro setup. Um, I've, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we run big spotters, which I didn't learn until I had talked to a guy that used, there's an old, there's a company called Dr. Optics. Right. And, and we went to Mm -hmm. a unit in Colorado and this guy would just drive up to the highest knob and uses 20 to 40 by 88 binoculars or whatever they are. And he would tell me where every deer was in the country. And I was only able to hunt one drainage, you know? Um, so uh-huh. it's like mule deer and optics, maybe go together better than any other type of hunting. Um, you know, so what's your glassing strategy? Um, you know, are you only using that BTX during scouting? Or are you bringing it up during season? Or are you more focused on like, uh, close, close deer at that point, like you're in
2: hunt mode versus like looking for any deer mode. hmm Um, I, I feel like it, I do use it a lot more during um, during the summer. Just get into those big high high ridges or whatever, to where you can look over as much country as possible. First thing in the morning, um, I will say I have a pair of 12s that I've been using the last couple of years. The the Nl Pures. and I've I do really really like those binos. But I feel like um, you get to like say it's the range between the 12s and the BTX that like I'll hunt. I got a buddy that I hunt with quite often and he's got a pair of the 15s and for that mid range, I mean, he kicks my butt for, for spotting stuff. And so I do feel like I'm going to try and get a pair of like either 15s or 18s. It, it just makes your pack really freaking heavy, you know? (laughs) For sure. Yeah.
0: and, And I've even went to a, a, you know, like on, on Steve's mill deer hunt last year um, and and really coming from the coos deer hunt, like I'll, I'll scan with my tens, you know, anything Mm -hmm. close or within a thousand yards. And then I've found, I spot more just going straight to my spotter, like, Mm-hmm. Go from tens to a spotter. I, that fifteen to eighteen range might be you know the the, the right solution, but mm-hmm. uh, we just crank our spotters down to twenty or twenty five or whatever the lowest setting we can, and like literally just walk it along the mountain. Especially after you kind of cream the the easy stuff, you know, if there was a deer out there, we would mm-hmm. spot it, and then we just go to work and and, and pick things apart with the spotter. Um, and we've started spotting way more deer um, going to a spotter on a tripod. Um, And then the other thing is like, even if it's just a a monopod or something like binoculars on a stick for mule deer is, you know, you need to get those things stabilized. Like I was always like Mm -hmm. the elbows on the knees, hat on the brim, you know, my hands are on the hat brim and it just, you can't Mm -hmm. keep still enough to spot ears flicker or a horn or whatever it may be at at distance. So, um, as much as I hate adding weight, it's like, we're adding, you know, even if it's a trekking pole or a tripod, like we're trying to stabilize our optics at all times.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So you're, you're glassing, like you're, you're going through that. Like, do you go as far as thinking like, all right, the sun's going to rise on the West. Like you're trying to put yourself in basin so that the sun's at your back. Like, do you, do you overthink that? Or do you just like thinking I've got a good 45 minutes before sunrise that I can glass everything and it doesn't really matter which direction or.
2: Um, that's a good question because I have screwed myself up pretty good getting (laughs) into like getting way back in places and not even thinking about that. But I do feel like the first, I mean, if you can get in there the first 45 minutes or so, um, for the most p- part, you'll be okay. But I mean, it, I I need to get better at that, put it that way. Yeah, I.
0: it seems like the morning you can get away with more, but it's sometimes that night sit where you're like, if you don't put your, where that sun's on the horizon, you're like, well, I shouldn't even have came to this base and I should have thought about Glass in the other way or looked at this at a different direction. But um, yeah, I just I've always caught myself and I, I always wonder if like, guys are thinking about that or if they've got a different strategy um so so how long will you glass an area before moving on like do you as far as coverage are you going to look it over a couple times is there like a a a point in the morning like oh he may be bedded to start with like he's going to get up an hour and a half later does it depend on weather like if it's raining they're going to be on their feet or if there's snow and they're on their feet like how do you decide like i've glassed here long enough i'm going i'm hiking out the ridge to the next basin
2: or to a different area Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's kind of interesting about that is I've noticed that, um, when it starts getting colder, like last weekend, for example, um, I was glassing into this basin and I had not seen anything in there. And I think it was, it was, it had been light for what, seven, 30 or so. It was about three hours before I started seeing anything. And so I gosh, I kind of feel like I'm becoming more of a believer. You got to, you got to just kind of wait it out, you know, maybe take a little break back on the glass. Start. I feel like it doesn't really matter in the, when it starts getting colder, I feel like, you know, that ten, eleven in the morning, that two, three in the afternoon, I feel like it's all good. Especially if you're in an area where you can pick apart a ton of country yep. too, you know? Yeah.
0: And that's that balance. I mean, it's that internal fight. We always have like it, you should have probably put yourself in the best spot or at least what I thought was the best spot starting the day. Are you willing to leave that to go find deer or should you just grind it out? Like, and a lot of it comes down to what you just said for me. Like what, what percentage of ground can I see? Like if I can see a whole bunch of ground versus I'm going to go only see 25% of that ground from hiking up and over, like, is it worth it? But then there's always that like, other other guy talking to me on my shoulder, like, but that big buck could just be standing in that little 25% patch. And, you know, right yeah. now, like, should you go check it out? And that's always one of those internal fights I have with myself is like when, because you know, as as time goes on, the days changing, bucks or deer getting out of their beds, moving, you can catch them. We've but but we've seen it both ways, right? And so that's really like that one thing we struggle with is stay in glass or move and get to a new area. And mm-hmm. I don't know if there is a right answer. I just didn't know if you had a preference or or if you, you're more inclined now, it sounds like maybe just staying to what you think is your best spot.
2: Yeah, I would say that. Like, it, especially from like scouting in the summer and stuff like that, I feel like, okay, I'm gonna get here to where I can spend like two plus hours and just keep going back over this stuff, checking it. You know. Yep. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. No, I, I like that, and and it, it it's what we usually end up deciding to is that you you know, not to repeat myself, but you put yourself in the best spot, your best vantage, your best Mm -hmm. spot to spot deer. Let's just stay here. And, and some people may think it's like the lazy way out, but, um, it's just, I think it's just your best chance. You know, uh, I don't know if you, Ryan Lamper is one of my buddies. Like, He's, you know, mm-hmm. he's similar to you, hikes all over the mountain, like n- physical never gets in the way. Um, but like he talks about his, his he killed 190 inch archery buck there in Colorado. And he's like, I didn't move for seven days. Cause the thing just went in bed in the right spot for me to approach. So it's like, you know, you ultimately killed this buck, but he's like, it was one of the easier hunts. Cause he didn't move for seven days straight <laughs> uh-huh. a- until the thing, <laughs> you know, bedded in the right spot. And so it's, I think it's just being patient, um, you know, having faith or, or confidence that they're there um you know it can be can be huge
2: that's that's the other thing too that's i mean that's i know as hard as it is, it is as it is to find a big one that's the nice thing about like putting in your time to scout and find one it's like okay this is where i've seen them and the other thing that i've noticed is like it doesn't take very much cover for them to to be able to hide you know like I, for example like i was saying last week and the the bucks that i turned up i had looked over that spot probably 10 times that morning. And then I gave it a break for 15 minutes looking at some other stuff and I came back and there they were. And I mean, there was so little cover for them to bed down in and that's where they, they were in that little tiny patch of timber, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and
0: and I I think, you know, as, as a hunt goes on, like I, I don't get the chance, especially on our out of state hunts to scout near as much as I want. And so you're kind of learning on the fly, but mm-hmm. you, know, you can pick up little things off the bat, like, uh, oh, the deer are on their feet for the first 15 minutes. And, and it, but it's like, so you're in that area, but as soon as they bed down, like if you, I'm sure we've all been there where you follow a deer, right. Or something that you're maybe interested in, or you kind of just keep tabs and it was in the wide mm-hmm. open, easy to see, but as soon as that thing beds down, like you won't see it for the next four hours and then it gets up out of bed. And then, so it, it's ideas like that. Like if you don't catch that buck in the exact right spot at the exact right time, you're not going to see him no matter where you're at. And, and he may be right there, which is kind of the underlying story on, on some of these things. Like they're typically going to be where you think they are. You just might not be able to see him. hmm um, Yeah. Uh, so, so rolling through, you know, you're, you're about, well, you're seven days into your Idaho season, you've got another 13 left or, 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 you know, some units close off a little bit earlier. Do you, do you change the way you hunt from start to finish? If weather doesn't come into play, do you assume that if, if, you know, there's no, or are you going to start like as season progresses? Are you going to start checking in on those staging areas that are a little lower on the mountain or the Ridge or like, how do you, how do you change your hunt or do you at all as, as season goes on, you know, through the end of October?
2: Um, well this year has been a little bit different because like I said, I wasn't able to turn anything up that great, you know, but it's like, what has been kind of fun this year is like, okay, I'm going to hunt till say 12 or one, and then I'm going to get out of there and I'm going to go to a completely different new area and check that out until dark. And like, typically, I mean, if it's, if it's a deer that I'm after, I would probably just hunt that gosh, I would probably just hunt that thing the whole season. Um, or as, or as long as I needed to say, you know, um, yeah, so it does, it really depends. I mean, I feel like, especially around here, if you are getting the snow, so many of the deer do move out of the country. You just have to be content with not seeing very many deer period, you know?
0: Yeah. You're just kind of so, going off your gut. whether do you think that target deer stayed up in the high country or hopefully didn't move down and you're probably second guessing yourself all along the way. But, um, it seems yep. like typically those big bucks are the last ones to to bail off, you know? So if you're still seeing deer in the area, I like to assume that they're still around, but you just never know.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree.
0: So I, I want to talk a little bit, uh, me and Steve got to, to go to Idaho last year on a, on a mule deer hunt. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've been, even been in that area or not, but it was, it was one of those cool hunts. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a, a special area, but it was one of those things where, you know, imp- we, we implored some of the strategies we're talking about now. Um, we, we, you know, stayed high on the Ridge and just, you know, glass as much country as we can. You know, he had a few little hot tips here and there. Um, uh, but, but we found, as I mentioned on that hunt, um, at that time of year those deer were on the south facing slopes they would come out of the bottom and you would get about a 15 minute chance to spot them between like where they were starting in the creek bottom or somewhere on that ledge versus when they would flop over to the north side you know the brushy timbered side of the ridge and so we started to use that to our advantage we would look at you know, maps, like where can we go to see the, you know, as many South facing slopes as we can. And, and it's just stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Like throughout the hunt, like we didn't have necessarily a target buck, but we were kind of just trying to put as many, uh, many options in our lap as we could. Um, you know, it was, it was an amazing hunt because, you know, the first day you pull up and see a 30 inch plus, you know, three point and, and you got to like walk away from it. And then, you know, around the next corner, you see, you see a one eighty plus, uh, you know, buck. And so it was, it was a different hunt, a very, very special place, but I'm trying to like roll some of this, this, you know, what we've talked about into that, like, you know, getting to a good vantage spot where you can, um, you know, where you can look into where you found the deer, you know, on the first day we realized kind of what the deer were doing. The second day we kind of, you know, took advantage of that. So we're trying to be educated deer hunters as we go on. Um, and, and it was one of those things where we didn't have a target buck. So it's, I think having a target animal, maybe like you are versus somebody that's just looking for something, um, that's, that's in, you know, what they want. It it makes a different Mm -hmm. hunt. It makes a lot different hunt where you might not be willing to leave the basin the entire day. We would, we would do what I would consider kind of your normal hunting where, where we would glass for two, two and a half hours. Like, oh, there's just the place is dead we've glassed 90% of it like let's move um and so that was mm-hmm. kind of our strategy and throughout the day and then the one downside is as we moved you would never really know like is is this place dead because it's not first light anymore you know and, and you're kind of like well i don't even know if this is a good spot like you don't want to write it off for tomorrow um you may want to come back and check on it first thing and um we just kind of uh, evolved on that hunt but uh it it was one the other thing i really wanted to take away from that hunt and talk about a little bit is we had, you know, me and Steve, uh, you know, Kenton was on that. We had multiple pieces of glass and it was mm-hmm. crazy to, to like how well a mule deer can hide. Um, like I had picked up a mule deer, um, uh, the buck that Steve ultimately had killed and we couldn't get any other spotters on it, but I was in like the worst spot to like keep track of him. Like I had a bunch of brush and sticks and Jack brush in my way. And, uh, it was just one of those things. And it really kind of led me to believe like. It, it it I don't want to keep tying things back, but it ties back to one of your original examples of like those deer are there. You just they are at times mm-hmm. impossible to find, and we knew they were there because we had watched them flop over the ridge, you know, an hour before. Like we, there was nowhere else for them to go, and they had did it two days in a row, right? And that's the other thing when deer are making these patterns and, and doing you know cyclical movements from food to bed from bed to food um you almost have to go with they're there until they're not but um you know picking them up in the glass is a whole nother story like we had put ourselves in the position to glass into there and just got lucky and, and picked them out of there um,
2: did, did you guys were you guys able to get him the first day that you found him
0: we did we got we got real um real fortunate um and we didn't even know he was a shooter buck um we spotted him from two plus miles away, just six or seven deer working up a ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could tell that two of them through the spotter. Like you could tell that two of them had frames, right? It's you hear about mm-hmm. people saying like, they've got good frames, but there was no way in hell we were telling you if you had a, any sort of forks, if he was a three point a four point, like what it was. And it was so far away that it, you know, you pulled out on X and you're like, all right, I think this is the ridge he's on. And I think this is how we get mm-hmm. there. You know? <laughs> um, and, and we walked out a trail, maybe a mile and a half to, to look into the backside of that, to get a good vantage. And we, we sat there for even an hour before just like all glass on that thing, picking it apart and just happened to in the middle of the day, it, it, and the hard part is you don't know if he got out of bed, right? He could have been bedded. He could have been feeding the whole time, but we didn't pick him up until about one in the afternoon. Um, you know, and then we, Steve, it ended up shooting him by two, but it's just one of those things that like, Man, you know, where where you going with with what's a low percentage just because it's so hard to see, but they're there. Like the, the mule deer, especially until you bump them or get winded, like they're going to probably keep doing the same thing back and forth, uh, you know, until they're, the rut comes along, weather comes along, or something bumps them out of their pattern.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I'd be curious too because it would be curious to see what that would Like, was he getting any pressure at all from people too? I mean, with it being a limited hunt,
0: there was another deer hunter around and there was one other elk hunter in the area, but nobody was really up in that zone that we were in. And so... That, that mm-hmm. also adds into the hunt, like how aggressive you need to be, um, how comfortable you are that that deer is not going to get bumped. Um, so yeah, it, it was nice knowing that, that nobody had been really messing with these deer, um, which is a huge advantage. You know, what you're talking about, is a lot of this over the counter stuff where you can get crazy amount of pressure, uh-huh. um, where you get into deer like this and it changes their behavior. It changes maybe how reluctant they are to be out in the open because nobody's really laying eyes on them or even, you know, bothering them at all.
2: Yeah. And, and what's interesting too, about that, that I've noticed is like the deer that you see the big ones, like that you see that are not getting screwed with, it's almost like they even have a completely different, they're just so much different, like compared to the ones that are getting very pressured. Like some we've seen like out here that are in a high pressured area I mean, you, they don't really get up and if they do, they're moving like really, really fast to get to more cover, Yeah, you know?
0: So you almost think it's like, it's like a switch goes off in their head. Like they're the same age class, but yet this deer recognizes all the pressure. He's like, I've got to step up my game or I've got to be safer where this other deer is like, I haven't seen anybody. Like I can continue to do this and, and get away with it <laughs> in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, yeah just just a note for all the listeners like uh steve's idaho meal deer hunt will be coming out i believe on november 2nd uh meat eater season 12 episode 4 i believe so for anybody that wants to go check out a a meal deer hunt where i explained to steve why elk are better than meal deer um well you you can go (laughs) tune into that one but it's a great hunt we had a lot of fun um you know it's sometimes cool to get to hunt real special places like that it's not like the majority of the places that duke gets to hunt um you know, it's a lot different, but I wanted to have Duke on. Like I say, he's, he's as humble as they come. He won't talk about what he's killed, but just, you'll have to trust me when, um, the guy kills some real, real big mule deer and, uh, he knows what he's talking about, um, when it comes to that. So I really appreciate having you on here, Duke. Normally at the end, I would say, let people know how they can find out about you, but you probably don't want anybody to follow you or pay any attention. So, uh, yeah,
2: yeah, I, I won't put
0: you through that. So,
2: yeah thanks i i honestly haven't been on the the social media stuff for quite a long time so you know yeah i don't i don't really have any of that stuff (laughs) Uh,
0: I, i don't i don't blame you and uh you know i i grew up real similar like everything was a secret we never talked about where we killed stuff and so i can i can really really respect uh all of that um no i appreciate having you on um like i say that you, you probably know more about mule deer forgot more than most and uh, appreciate having you on and, and sharing a little bit of what you know and uh good luck um i know we had to squeeze this podcast in because you're getting ready to take off i think for the the rest of the season or at least this week so uh wish you the best of luck and hopefully you can find one of those uh, target bugs
2: thanks jason thanks for having me yep take care
0: After three years of work, our follow-up
3: to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with aji verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.